And uh, again, we get to vote on the title of today's sermon. So, option number one, guess who's coming to dinner? You guys ever seen that movie from like the 60s? Or the remake from the 2000s? They were both pretty funny. Huh? Yes, Sidney Poitier. Yep, it was a good movie. Or, what to wear on a dinner date with Jesus? So vote, guess who's coming for dinner? Who likes that title? All right, now vote what to wear on a dinner date with Jesus. Oh, that one wins. Okay. So that's the, that's the name of today's sermon. All right, so first we have a question. Have you ever, um, well, listen, if you could go to dinner with someone other than your spouse, because I know all of you would say your spouse, uh, but if you could go to dinner with someone in this world other than, not Jesus, I have to, all of you gonna, Christians are going to give me all your Jesus answers. Someone in this world, who would you get, go to dinner with, with, with someone in this world? And just, just shout it out. What, what do you think? Besides your spouse. Okay, you're a dork. <laughs> you would be vastly disappointed. <laughs> An orphan from Africa. Okay. Your mom. All right. You'd be really excited about that. What? Shout it out. He's not alive today. That would be gross. I said alive today. Go to dinner. You can't go to dinner with this decomposed body. <laughs> Alexa. Again, not human. <laughs> I knew this was going to backfire with Ryan and the crowd. <laughs> what? Okay. You take her? Okay. What? Oh, okay. So, cute soccer player. Better watch out. Just a really good soccer player. Okay. He's not cute. <laughs> He's got cool tattoos. I don't know. He's a cool guy. Okay. Uh, we go, we, we get excited uh, to go to dinner. You know, that's, you guys picture in your mind, you know, a teenage girl getting ready for her first date. What kind of emotions come out? It's giggles. It's, you know, or your daughter right now with Griffin. He's, she totally is smitten. She loves him so much. Just, oh, if she could go to dinner with him, she'd be like getting her nails done and dressing. Yeah, this is way too early for a three-year-old to be thinking about. You guys are like hating me right now. Do you guys know what teenage girls act like when they're excited to go on a date, when they're excited to go to dinner? You know, if you, what if, what if the you were going to have the president of the United States, I just forget who it is, but the president come to your house for dinner, would you, would you do some cleaning, get a little bit excited, maybe actually think about the meal you're planning? We, we have this, you know, we, we know that eating together and having a meal together is an important thing, even if we can't put our finger on why it's important to us, but... We know that going on a date is exciting because you're going to get to know someone. You're going to be able to dive in and experience who that person is. And that part of you was designed by God. He made you like that. Date nights are extremely important for for husbands and wives to go on because it's just 
it, 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 you, living together, you just kind of like wake up and, oh, you again, and you, oh, okay, so we're doing this again, you know, and it's just after years and years, you have to remember that, oh, yeah, this is a person that I actually enjoy hanging out with and I want to invest in and, and enjoy. I see so many elbows going on right now. It's like, this is... <laughs> okay. God made you like that because inside we are, we are humans, we are made in God's image, and we have a hunger for relationship, for digging in and, and getting to know each other and pouring in and receiving from each other. And that, that go back and forth that, that happens on a date is like so satisfying for us. And when we don't get it, we kind of dry up and shrivel up personally. We, we just aren't as human as we once were. So God made us that way. And in this chapter, we are going to see some of the most, um, this is one of the most beautiful chapters you're ever going to read in the Bible. I'm so excited to just be able to read it with you guys today. Um, because this is like, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament is like a big deal. And Jesus is transformed and his glory is shown. The disciples, they're up on a mountain. Like pretty much every part of the Mount of uh, the Transfiguration uh, experience is a pinnacle in the New Testament. Well, what we're going to read today is the same thing, but in the Old Testament. This is like the pinnacle of relationship with God, but in the Old Testament. Nobody ever saw Jesus transfigured except for who? What was their names? All right, 20 Jesus points. Good job. All right, so let's go ahead and, and look at our, our text here. We're going to get into the, we're going to get through the entire chapter today, which if you know me, is a miracle. All right. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. That seems so contradictory. That seems really strange. Why would God say, I want your top people to come up close to me, but stay far away? Well, since we just finished studying chapters 21, 20, 21, and 22, and 23, does anyone remember what was in those chapters? Law. Law. Okay, you had the Ten Commandments, then you had the civil law in Israel, and there was wonderful, beautiful pictures of Jesus in that. But don't forget, it was law, it was rules. And so what we see here, is, and the Holy Spirit really wants us to see as Christians reading this chapter, that we cannot draw near to God based on our performance to laws. Period. We will never measure up to those laws. How many times when we were studying the Ten Commandments did we say, so you're going to fail, so you can't do this. We, they're just too high. They're too holy. And it's not that they're like overly holy. They're just holy. And we are so unholy and unable to keep them that we will never measure up to these commands. And that's... That, that, that way of relating to God based on how you measure up, I want you guys to say this, is performance-based religion. Say it. Performance-based religion. And that is not you. 
That is not what we have. Performance-based religion will never work. The the Christianese way of saying that is legalism. Legalism. Okay. No matter how hard we try or even succeed in keeping all these laws, we will never be holy enough for God if that's the way that we're doing it. We will have to worship from afar. Does that sound like fun? When you think of going on a date with someone, do you sit across the room from them and be like, hey, maybe if they forgot their deodorant, but God is saying you have to stay away. You have to stay away. You can't come to dinner with me. I love you and I want you to, but, but you have to, does that make sense? So when we think about this, we have to think of Ephesians chapter two, because in our reality, where we're at right now, this doesn't exist anymore. Okay. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, far off, have been what? Brought near, brought close by the blood of Christ. Isn't that such an amazing verse? We're going we're gonna to camp on that verse. We're going to memorize it. You guys have to know that verse because we used to be far away. But that is not the truth about you anymore. But how many of you feel far away from the Lord sometimes? I do sometimes, but is it true? No, it's not true. And the enemy just lies and yells, you're far away, he's not hearing your prayers, you suck. And he says it over and over and over again until we start believing his truth, which is a lie, as opposed to God's truth, which is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you put your trust in him? Then you are brought near. We, oh, I'm getting pumped up already. No matter who you are, look at who was invited by God. You have Aaron, you have Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders. These are basically the big shots in the nation of Israel. People who were important, people who had some standing and some ability among the people. But the truth is, even these guys had no ability to stand before God. They had to stay far away. Because at this point in their life, they are in a performance-based religion. Law-keeping was how they approached God, and it doesn't work. Another verse that's so important for us is Romans chapter 10, verse 4, which says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who goes to church every Sunday. Wait, that's not what it says? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everybody who prays super duper hard. That's not it either. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everybody who believes. That is the requirement for you to be completely righteous. Believe what? Believe what Jesus did to make you Righteous in standing and in practical living. Well, man cannot approach God based on works in the past, but now we live in a different reality, okay? We're not these 70 elders. We get 
full access. We're going we're gonna to keep building upon this foundation. But I want you to see these 70 elders, Nadab and Abihu, who were goofballs anyway. We're going to see that in Deuteronomy, or Numbers, but uh, Leviticus, I mean. Um, look at verse 2. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So my question for all of you is why can Moses go up, but everybody else couldn't? Who's got an idea? God only wanted Moses to come up. Okay, but I, that's probably true. He did. He just said he did. But doesn't, is, don't you see a problem with that? God chose him, right? But isn't Moses just as much of a sinner as they are? Isn't he just as... Didn't he murder someone? He did experience God's grace. We did learn about that. Him going up has nothing to do with being better or being perfect. It's because Moses, by God's grace and by God's choosing is a type of Jesus for us. Remember, everything that happened was written for you, for Christians. All the history of Israel is not really about Israel. Jesus says it was written for us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. This, Moses, is a picture of Jesus. And as a type of Jesus, Jesus can approach God in his glory in his, before his throne because Jesus is holy. Jesus can just walk right into heaven when all of us would be stopped at the door and say, mm, sorry, not going to happen. So look at verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. That's the last three chapters. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So the people have been invited into this covenant of works and they promise to fulfill every part of it. Now, how many times have you been at the altar? Lord God, I will never do that again. You guys been there? How many times have we gone back and done the same thing again? Um, just innumerable. Why does it work that way? And why do we keep thinking that making promises to God is what he wants? Where did we get the idea that God is saying, come before me and promise me you'll never do it again? He never says that. That is nowhere in the Bible in fact, it's a lie of the enemy to get us to be self-sufficient. I'm going to do this. I don't need you, but I'm really sorry. But I don't need, but I can, oh, I'm so confused. That's how it works. The enemy just gets us all twisted up. Our promises don't mean anything. And guess what? That's great news. So instead of me having to live my life saying, God, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'm going to get it this time. Instead of that kind of life, we have a life that just listens to his promises to us. Hey, I love you even though you're an idiot. I will forgive you a thousand times a thousand. I 
have already cleansed you. You are already brought near. These are the promises of God's grace that we live by every day. We don't have to do anything for those to be real because he made the promise. He will fulfill it. It has nothing to do with you and your efforts and your promises. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do more. But we always go back because we can't fulfill our promise. We're not promise keepers. You remember the promise keepers? Um, it, was a, it was a men's group. 20, is it still there? Yeah. Um, I just, I don't see that principle in the Bible of that's how God's work gets accomplished. You keeping your promises. It's not. We are rather promise believers. We're believing his power in his works. The moment I get my attention focused on me, what happens? Failure. You guys can preach this sermon, right? So look at verse 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young men, these are little priests that they're training, of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So Moses here sets up a, an altar for the people and you got some oxen being sacrificed there. And when you sacrifice an oxen, you take a knife and you slit his throat and its blood pours out. And that's the whole vision here is blood is everywhere blood gross blood right dana when she eats a steak she loves when there's just blood on the you do i'm i'm exaggerating she wants her steak extra super well done Blech. <laughs> anyway blood 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 now look at verse six and moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. What is going on here? Well, in the olden days, when you had a contract, you had to sign the contract in blood. Blood was what they used to ratify a deal. So, this is the sign of the covenant. The old covenant. Remember, the people have been invited into this works-based relationship with God. It's not how they're saved. That has never been part of the equation. 400 years ago, God said, I'll save you if you just trust me. That's what salvation has always been. Trust me. Trust that I will bring a seed from Abraham. Trust the Messiah. That's always been the way someone gets saved. But he institutes now this covenant of works where they can experience some blessings and be used by him if they perform up to these standards. And this covenant is signed with blood. Let's look at it further. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant. I want you to highlight that. Book of the covenant in your Bibles. Book of the covenant. He took this book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, "All they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So they're agreeing to this contract. 
They're saying, we're going to keep the Ten Commandments and we're going to run our country the way God wants us to. And in return, he's going to bless us. We're going to experience all the things we, we saw at the end of, the, of, of chapter 23. Again, what I want you guys to see today in Denver, Colorado in 2018 is that all the realities of the blessings Israel was looking for and the blessings Israel... It's not a bad thing that Israel said, yeah, we're going to do it. We just know that they are terrible at this and they're going to pretty much last like one second before they screw it all up, okay? But it's not a bad thing for them to say, we want God's blessings. God, that's, that's a very good thing. But this whole covenant is going to be designed to show them that they cannot earn these blessings, but it's even more designed for you, all of us in here today, to realize that all of these blessings in the Old Testament are foreshadows of realities that we live in and have today in our possession through Jesus Christ right now. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to work for it. It was given to us. He said, this covenant of works does not work because y'all are weak and can't do it. So I'm going to just give you everything through Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful news? That's why it's called the gospel. He, does, he gives us all to us for free. Well, let's look at verse 8. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Remember, he had two basins, so one he sprinkled the altar. Now he takes some of the blood, gross, and sprinkles it on the people, gross, and all the people are like, what have I got myself into? This is a gross religion. Egypt, we never got blood sprinkled on us unless it was the person next to us being whipped. Ooh, that was actually a good one. (laughs) So he takes the blood, sprinkles it on the people, and said, look at what he says. This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. What did he just say? This is the blood of the covenant? There is deeper meaning here than just what was going on during this time with the Jews. So turn with me to Luke chapter 22 verse 20. Very important verse. We're going to have it up on, the, up on the screens here in just a second. Luke 22, 20. Jesus is at the Last Supper right before he's crucified. And he says, likewise, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So what we have in Exodus is bull's blood, oxen blood, that they sprinkled on the people. And in the foreshadow, the completion of that foreshadow is we have the blood of Jesus fulfilling what that was foreshadowing. Isn't that amazing? We're taught, always look for Jesus on the pages of your Old Testament, right? So now we see this blood, we see the exact same phrase, blood of the covenant, uttered by Jesus. What do you think Jesus wants us to do? Go back to Exodus and Think about all the things that this blood did for the people in Israel and then think how much more his blood is going to do for you. That's what Jesus' desire for us is. Both covenants, the old and the new, were all ratified by blood. 
ratified by blood, accept the price for this covenant, this contract to be sealed is blood. When you, when you do a new contract on a house, BK, isn't there like a, a price to get it done? What's that called? Not blood? <laughs> but it, isn't it called something like a, per, like, yeah, doesn't it cost money? Like a origination fee. That's, is that what I'm, I'm talking about that. Okay. I know what I'm doing. I'm talking about if you need a home loan, whatever. <laughs> He's like, thanks for the advertising. This is amazing church. I love it. Anyway, uh, blood was the price for this agree- both agreements to be ratified. But wait, 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 wait. How could the blood of bulls and, and goats and oxen actually do anything for these people? Is it going to work? How can you kill an ox and sprinkle it on people? Why aren't we doing that today? Okay, why was it val- Why did it work back then? Because we're going to see there are people are going to come into God's presence. Okay, so why would it work? It's because does anyone have a dollar bill in their in their pocket they can hold up? Anyone have cash? We live in a cashless society. This is ridiculous. Oh, there you go. All right, hold that nice and high. We got we got some cash money right here. But you are loaded, girlfriend. But actually, one dollar. Actually, it's, oh, you got $10. She's the richest in our midst right now. But, but the $10 and the $1, they're just pieces of paper. So why are we ooing and aahing over these pieces of paper? Do they actually have value? And the answer is yes, they do actually have value because they're attached and they represent something in Fort Knox called gold. And the gold in Fort Knox has real substantial value and the money of something worthless like paper actually represents something that's real. And the blood of oxen and the blood of goats can't cleanse from sin, but when you attach faith to it, they, the people weren't trusting in the ox to save them. They were trusting in the future Messiah who would come and who would give his blood. That was the real value. It's the gold in Fort Knox, okay? What? Dollar bull. That's right. Okay. We're going to have to look at Hebrews chapter 9 for an in-depth study of that whole process of the blood of bulls and goats and stuff, but we're not there yet. So now this section of the, uh, is like, again, like I said, like the Old Testament version of the Mount of Transfiguration where the, the disciples saw the glory of Jesus, just bright and shiny, and, and it was something that just so amazed them. Now look at what happens right here. The people of Israel are going to get to see the glory of God. So look at verse 9. So Moses went up, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and now they saw... This is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, and I almost just read it with just a straight face. They saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. Wait a second. I thought anyone who sees God would die. Don't we, don't we learn that in the Bible? So how are they not burning and disintegrating like the guy at the end of 
Indiana Jones. Remember? He drinks in the whatever. How is this happening? Look what happens. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So now these guys, Israel, are invited to see God and they see, what does it focus on? Just his floor, just his tile. If Norm was here, I'd be like, look at that tile job, Norm. But he's a tile guy. Anyway, um, this, the floor, it's like they're barely getting their eyes up because it's so glorious. All that they're seeing is the floor first. And they're blown away because it looks like sapphire stone. Remember when they were in Egypt, what they used to make? Bricks, right? They would pave things with their bricks. They had to serve their gods, the people that were over them and their authority, by making them bricks. But what is their reality now? They are, God is seated on a throne and they are before him, accepted by him, and he is seated on beautiful, perfect sapphire stones. He has no need of their bricks, does he? He doesn't need their hard work making them bricks. They don't have any place in his kingdom. He is just fine with his own tile. He's fine. He probably had angels commissioned to do it or something. He probably created a creature that just made tile. Tile monster or something. Anyway, they are not there to try to impress him. He wants to impress them. He wants to provide for them. He wants to be the good father that is taking care of them, and he's inviting them into deeper fellowship through covenant or through promises, but not their promises, his own promises, his own love, his own you know, relationship. He's going to be the basis of this relationship because they're no longer going to have a relationship with their God based on slavery. Wasn't that what it was before? When they were making bricks and their whole life was about make more bricks and make more bricks. And you know what? I don't like you anymore. Make even more bricks. And that's what their relationship to deity was back then. But God is freeing them from that whole way of living. I don't want your stinking bricks. I have my own sapphire stones. How many Christians today believe that God desires them to be a slave? We see it with things like, what are you doing for God today? How are you measuring up today? Let me see what you've done for God. Let's compare who's doing more for God. This whole uh, cultural and, and church phenomenon of performance-based religion has snuck in. And it's not the gospel. The gospel is very clear to us. Serving God seems to be elevated way past knowing God and enjoying God. Where in the Bible, it's flipped around. He says, you got to know me first and then you have to enjoy me. It shouldn't be serving me first. Serving God should be something that just flows. 
just happens as you're focused on knowing him through the new covenant and enjoying him, then the serving is not a problem. Serving does not burn you out when it's that kind of pouring out thing. Our serving God has to flow out of relationship-based religion, not performance-based religion. If someone tells you serving is how you measure your relationship with God, that is just simply not accurate. How, what did Jesus do for 30 years? Nothing. He just went to church. He just knew God and enjoyed God. He did not serve, and the Bible is explicit about this, he did not serve until he was baptized and um, inaugurated for a ministry that was assigned to him. I mean, you could call him God's servant, but he was just really knowing God and enjoying God for 30 years, and then he served for how many years? Three. So why are we freaked out about why we're not in ministry yet? Oh, because I've been a Christian for eight months and I'm so ready to just teach everybody? No, we have to enjoy God first and grow in Him and the serving will just naturally happen. How about that? Does that bring freedom to you or is that a bummer? Yeah, it's awesome, right? Look at verse 11. But on, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and he ate and they ate and drank. So even the author of the book here, who is Moses is assembling all this information for us. The, Moses is like, guys, God didn't kill them. Which if you've read the rest of the story, you would be totally justified to think God should kill them right now. Like, and we know that he could kill them at any time, but he is emphasizing God didn't lay a hand on them. He let them come to dinner, and look what it says. They ate and drank with him. Are you kidding me? If you don't read this carefully, you could miss the fact that this verse has one of the most precious and wonderful verses in the entire entirety of all the books of Moses, entirety of the word of God, because this verse shows us the incalculable value of the blood of Jesus. It can take people who are nothing and who are wicked and make them holy. And people who were never invited into God's dinner, and they are now welcomed. Do you see how his blood secures these blessings for God's people, who is you? His blood does this for us. They're able to see God, which was amazing. Now they're even able to eat and drink in his presence, which speaks of enjoying fellowship with God. So not only are their eyes open so they can see how amazing he is and holy he is, but now they're at such peace and they have this crazy confidence to enter his... And that's what is missing in most Christians that I know is confidence in the blood of Jesus. But these people had it. They were confident, not in themselves, but in the blood that was shed for them. 
And I want you to see something really crazy. This, we're going to take a turn, and it's going to be amazing. Jesus even thinks that this is the best part of the entire work of redemption. This is going to blow your mind. It's going to, it's going to, he, Jesus was so pumped up about eating in God's presence with people. This is amazing. Have you ever been excited about having dinner with someone, like we said at the beginning? Yeah. Your heart flutters. You're like, oh my gosh, we're going to have dinner. It's going to be great. Well, Jesus, we're going to see, has that feeling about you. Eating and drinking in the Bible always describes fellowship, connection, acceptance, and joy. And isn't it funny that that's exactly what most Christians don't experience? You're not happy. You you don't seem like you really feel accepted by God, like you're always trying to earn his acceptance. What we're going to see is that eating and drinking with him is the priority and it's the, the real source of this abundant life that God has for us. So go back to Luke chapter 22. Remember we were there? And remember Jesus said, oh, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is being started in my blood. I'm going to pour it out. And look what he says. And then in verse 14 through 20, right before he talked about initiating the new covenant, look at the way Jesus' heart is explained to us. Verse 14 starting. He says, and when the hour was come, he sat down with his 12 disciples with him. And he said to them, with desire, I have desired. No, in English, that's like weird. But in Greek, it means with great, he just says the same word twice, like desire, desire. He's like, with extreme desire, I have desired. I am so pumped up about what? To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? For I say it to you, I will not eat any I will not any more eat thereof until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is given for you, which is shed for you. Okay, so there's Jesus saying, I am so pumped up about a meal. But not really this meal, the meal that's going to come. The meal that's going to come. So now let's look in Acts. In Acts chapter 10, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus did a bunch of stuff on the earth and then he ascended. Okay? Now check this out. Now, one of the disciples is preaching and he says, and we are witnesses of all, chapter 10, verse 39, sorry. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, verse 41, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Now look at this. 
even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Isn't this amazing? This guy says, the coolest part of the death and the resurrection is we got to eat a meal with him after he rose from the dead. What does that mean? They got to experience the reality that Jesus was talking about and that was foreshadowed even further in Exodus chapter 24. The meal that the Jews shared with God back then, the disciples got the real thing. They got the real acceptance. They got the real meal. And why does this guy bring it up? Because that's what you get also. If you remember, um, you know, so, so this meal is that they, they get to experience his love and his acceptance and, and have free communication. And that's what, even Israel was only a foreshadow, the disciples got to taste the real thing and you and I get that real thing. If you remember in heaven, we're going to see, the first thing that we're going to see really is the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that's no coincidence. His wedding, like we're a part of his wedding, we're the bride, is going to be the full completion of this idea of fellowship and this meal. The wedding is like having a meal together. So what about now? What about this, this Denver, Colorado, 2018 that we're living in? We get to taste of these, this relationship, these heavenly foods, and drink this drink as we believe his words today. That's how we sit down and have a meal with Jesus. Okay? We do it sometimes with communion, like we're going to do during our last song today. But really, the invitation is for you to moment by moment, each moment of the day, believe Jesus' promises, which is believing his covenant, which is believing the gospel, and that will give you everything. Jesus says, that's what I'm super pumped up about, that some of you are going to actually believe me. And by believing, you're going to have all the life that you could ever dream of. Everything you've ever lacked will be provided to you. In John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he's saying, you got to be part of this meal or your Christian life is going to be lame. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up in the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Our job is to abide in Jesus, which means our job is to eat his flesh and drink his blood, partake of this meal, which means believing. This is our one work that we need to focus on. And if you focus on anything else except eating his blood, body and drinking his blood, your life is not where it needs to be. Oh, I can't spend time with Jesus right now. I'm too busy in ministry. My family needs too much of my attention. My wife, my children are, I can't think about Jesus right now. 
That's the exact time when you have to abide in Christ. Because he says abiding is a, is a continual thing. This is, blows my mind. So our one work is to abide. That means consuming. That's believing and trusting his word and his work. That is our work, to believe and trust in his work. Like if you look back in verse 35 in John chapter 6, he says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's how I get the idea that the body and blood is really about believing. It's about believing. All right? So we're invited to his dinner. And Jesus, by his blood, says, I am so pumped up about this dinner. All right, let's go to back of our text in Exodus chapter 12. I know that we have a lot left, but it's going to go quick, trust me. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I, which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God and said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Wait here for us until we come back to you. Who does Moses represent in our type? Jesus. Can you remember a time when Jesus disappeared and says, wait for me? Right? He ascended into heaven. He took off and left the people, right? We're going to see here a beautiful picture of Jesus and what is going on between his ascension and his return. So let's check this out. Wait here for us. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to him. Then Moses went up in the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. So this going up represents the, resur- resurrect- or the ascension of Jesus. Verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses is busy with God during this time up in the cloud. And then, Moses, and then God calls him to return down. Verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the six days was their meal, their, their, their party together when everyone was eating and drinking with the Lord. Six days. God knows how to get down. <laughs> then... God calls Moses up further where the people can't go, and he's with him 40 days. And here's the sneak peek, okay? What is Moses going to get over the next 40 days? Moses is going to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, which is where we're going to go in our study. And so for these 40 days, Moses is receiving the instruction of the tabernacle, and then he'll come Back down. Now, the tabernacle, as we study it, we're going to see that the tabernacle shows us and teaches us 
about the ministry of Jesus and all that Jesus is doing in this world right now that he has been up in heaven performing all these functions of the tabernacle. So it's talking about the ministry of Jesus as our high priest, the tabernacle. And isn't it funny, isn't it amazing that Jesus has been doing all the functions of the tabernacle during his time when he's up in glory, whereas Moses was receiving all the instructions for the tabernacle when he was up in glory. See, these things go together, but they're an antitype. They work in that way. We are going to be extremely blessed as we study the, the tabernacle because it is going to help us understand all that Jesus is doing for us right now. Jesus is the truth behind all these shadows. When we see Moses going up and we see all this happening, the Holy Spirit gave us these pictures to show us what Jesus would do. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, now I want you to contrast Moses and Israel because they, they were like, oh, it's so bright and it's such a consuming fire and it's, ah, you know, but we all with unveiled face, we don't have to do that. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We get the real. They had to see through a cloud. We get to be transformed while they had to perform. Do you see the vast difference between the people of Israel and the, the glorious privileges of the church? They had to perform, we get to be transformed. As soon as they break the covenant, guess what never happens again? Which the next thing they're going to do is break the covenant. They never get to see God again. They haven't broken the covenant yet. And God is like, woohoo, we get to party. I'm so love you guys so much. Let's, oh, but you can't be here anymore. Sorry. Now you have to wait right? Where we get the opposite experience. We get to enter his presence continually, eat the meal with him continually, and we never have to leave because our sin is banished. Our sin is paid for. Our sin is washed clean. They never see God again. So in Hebrews chapter 9, we're just going to read the section that deals with this. It says, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord God commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels in the ministry. We're going to see that later. He's going to, everything in the tabernacle, he's going to sprinkle with blood. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's saying, this little altar that Moses built was not a big deal, but it foreshadowed the real thing. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus appears in God's presence for us. And now we stand and enter into God's presence because we are in Jesus. 
in Jesus. That's the gospel. We are brought in Christ. Does Jesus have any fear standing before his father? Did he do anything to, to be ashamed of? No, he can walk right into his God's presence and he is exalted and glorified because he earned it. He's Jesus. But the crazy thing about the gospel is that we are in him and that is with our reality. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. How does that work? It's like a coat. I know we don't want to think about coats today because it's very hot outside. When you put on a coat, you are, it's an action, but it's an act of faith. When you put on Christ, you are putting his blood on you by faith. And we receive absolutely everything we need or could ever want from God when we come before him clothed in the blood of his son. And get this, God cannot help but pour out grace upon the wise person that approaches his mighty throne in this way, clothed in the blood. In fact, why does God forgive you? It is not because he loves you. He does love you. But why is God so reliable to forgive everything, even when you don't deserve it? It's because God respects Jesus. And Jesus tells his father, I have paid for this one. He has come to me. And so he is now in me. And God says, right on. I love it because I respect you, my son. I respect your sacrifice. I respect your blood. In fact, if we could see the emotional response that God the Father has when he observes the blood of his son, we would, be, we would never leave his presence. Because I love when you see someone, when you see someone so overjoyed. You know those reunion videos like, like when they've been at war for a long time and the mom and they come back and the mom's like, oh, 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 oh. you guys seen those videos? Don't they just make you cry? Like, oh, such joy. And, the, and like it, that, our father in heaven, his heart overflows so much more than we could ever realize in love towards us because of the blood of Christ. And his welcome of us is so complete and it is so massive. Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? We're not going to anymore. We're just going to enter his presence. We're going to eat that meal by faith, aren't we? All right, let's stand up. Let's do it. We're going to sing a song. We have communion available. So what we do uh, generally is just any time during this song, if you want to uh, engage with Jesus, of, of, with what we just learned, and you want to say, man, I believe 
in the blood of Jesus. Then please come and take communion. Take his body, chew it up, remember how it was sacrificed for you. Take the cup, drink it down, remember his life and his promises to you. And uh, let's pray. Father, we enter your presence clothed with your blood. There is nothing of more value than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so to have that gifted to us is truly the greatest gift in the history of all time and space. And we will put that blood on by faith right now. We slip it on like a coat and we will abide. Jesus, you are everything for us. And when we lift our eyes to you and remember your promises, our problems seem so small. In fact, we have no more problems. So Father, we want to just live and abide in your blood.